I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Boer. And Bill, it's been a little while since we've been in the saddle. Yeah, no, I, I guess we did put one out last week. It just seems like it's been a long time since we've been together. Exactly. Well, so much has happened. And we have, it, it is clear now, we know, Vladimir Putin has said that, that Donald Trump would never, never need to associate with women of ill repute. He has beautiful women all the time, but if he did... Best women of ill repute are in Russia. Yeah, I know. You know, I uh, there's so many jokes I want to make about that, but because I'm on a board that deals with human trafficking, there's just nothing funny about that, other than the fact that um, that's what the second most powerful man in the world is saying, and that we're on the verge of having the two most powerful people in the world be Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. I mean, I think to say second. I don't know. Putin might be. Well, yeah, we should go number one and puppet. I don't know. It's Because uh... a Manchurian candidate would involve a much more elaborate sci-fi process. I mean, this is just old school KGB. Like, I mean, this is, and this is not a hard to manage asset, it seems no. like. This is really. No, no. Putin's like, I could have had this guy, managed this guy at 27. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even using skills. Yeah, I know. It's kind of, it's, it's pretty strange. And, uh, and the and the brave strange world begins this week. So uh, it is. It also is pretty funny. Dan Lapetard, who is I think a very funny sportscaster and, and very smart, and, and they they he does a a radio program based in Miami, but it's on ESPN Radio. That's kind of the unsports sports show. And he was saying Obama is getting more stuff done in the last week. You know, he's uh, you know he. Gives Biden a medal. He gives a speech. He brings up Chicago Cubs. So he is, uh, you know, he's he is getting a lot of uh, a lot out of his last days in office. That's yeah, sure. I mean, he's the fourth quarter. I mean, it's just like Phil Sims. Hurry, hurry up, you know, no huddle. <laughs> no, there's a no no huddle presidency going on. Uh, troops in Norway. Troops in Poland. Uh, oh my goodness. Do you think you're like, gosh, why couldn't we like have like? Aggression to threaten Hawaii, like troops in Hawaii. If you're a Marine, like, why aren't they like? Okay. I mean, come on, so, well, yeah, you have the, you have the Siberian front. We're, we're I mean, moving into we're moving into Norway in January. Yeah, no, nah, it doesn't sound like fun. Of course, it doesn't sound like fun being in Italy or, or Greece right now. I mean, gosh, the weird weather they're having there, and uh, uh, yeah, and uh, 2016, the warmest year on record. Well, I can only hope that the studio here becomes beachfront property. That's the good, <laughs> the, the upside of the global warming agenda upside is that, hey, you know, I mean, my homeland, New Jersey, will no longer exist. But things, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Right. That's right. So the bunker, what we call the bunker once we become uh, it's a It's a bungalow. Bungalow. There we it's go. It's the bungalow. I like it. I mean, it's not, a, no uh, longer a bunker. 
I like it. There we go. So I might put in skylights at that. So point. I think you know this is part of our you know we've gone through all the stages of uh, of grief, and so now we're just embracing the new possible realities live from the bungalow. Exactly. Here we, we, did, are. we would need like um, uh, the, like the uh, Buena Vista. Uh, yeah, that we need we need a music music band once we become a big bungalow. Maybe. The, Something like Calypso. That. I'm thinking, yeah, a little Cuban. Since Cuban's open, we could probably get some Cuban musicians, uh, like the Buena Vista Social Club. I mean, I know most of them are no longer with us, but something like that. This could be a lot of fun. I, it could be a whole new, a whole new thing for us. Bill, I, I like you as an optimist. Yeah, I, know. I, I like that. You wear optimism well. Yeah, thank you. It's um, it's amazing what that electroshock therapy can do for you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't say it's out of that. I mean, you know, certain things. Like shock therapy, you know. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I they never I, go out of style. No, you just stick a fork into the uh, socket, and you can do it yourself. Yeah, and you could probably do it for other people. I mean, like, it, yeah, would you, do you supervise this like spiritual direction? I, yeah, we, well, you know, you can YouTube it, and there we go. Thank, exactly, there and then you're not responsible. So, Bill, I have a question for you. All right, and this is going to be a more serious question than generally when I ask you questions on the podcast. Generally, I do that to embarrass you, but yeah, I know. Yeah. This is actually honest. Is it possible for a writer to be objective? No. There you go. That was not even <laughs> reflected. It's just an impulse. No, I don't think it's possible for anybody to be objective. Well, I think then you agree with Pankaj, Pankaj Mishra and Leslie Jameson, who wrote a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times book review on in a column called Bookends, where they ask every week two writers to take on questions about the world of books. And the intro line here is Janet Malcolm once said that the pose of fair-mindedness, the charade of even-handedness are rhetorical ruses. So then this week, Panja, Pankaj, Mishra, and Leslie Jameson discuss whether writers can ever truly put aside their own prejudices and interpretations. And I think they come out, oh, they use more words, but I think basically they both say no. Yeah, and by the way, they're very they're very good articles. I would I would uh, commend them to you. We'll put them in the show notes. But uh, no, I, I think it's it it and they illustrate it in a very unique way. They don't you know it's not they're not taking it from a religious debate or a philosophical debate. But uh, yeah, the, the illustrations are very good, and 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 each of their stories help to think about that. Yeah, because pa- Pankaj Mishra, I have a tough time with that name, Mister Mishra, says that in the nineteenth century when objectivity was maybe at the kind of post-enlightenment high, it was often used to back up pseudoscience like phrenology and things like this to show that blacks weren't equal or women or that that basically you had in the name of objectivity, there was a a lot of ideological oppression that was anything but scientific or dispassionate. Yeah, and defining that, that was the pseudoscience of measuring cranial... They they would measure the size of your your cranium, and from that they said they could you know talk about all kinds of things. And it's part of the there was a whole it's interesting there was a whole wave of pseudoscience that came out of the evolutionary idea. Uh, eugenics is another one of those things that uh, has even a darker history than that. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it is an interesting thing, uh, and even the whole um, the whole modern move towards this idea of objectivity that it's still, it's in our language. Uh, We still talk. I mean, we talk inconsistently in in the current discourse about 
about objectivity. On one level, we we do uh, want to we act as if everybody's position, everyone has an opinion, and that uh, somehow that we we acknowledge a kind of relativity there, but then we tend to privilege our own opinion as being objective. Yeah. And and it's kind of it's to me in some levels, you know, it's the other, it's the uh, unintended consequence of the modern project that uh, all these great universal ideas that they thought existed are and, and created, um, you know, a kind of framework for things like universal law and universal all kinds of ethics and principles and things like that, universal laws of science, universal. Uh, you know, international law, things like this. Uh, it seems like it, it's it's all diffused into this idea of I alone am Lord of the conscience, and I alone am am the arbitrator of truth. But uh, we fail to. I, th- I think we fail to get the implication that that would be an extreme relativism. But we don't act like relativists when we're talking about our own positions. Yeah, I, but I feel like the crazy thing is now we're at a place where like. We don't act relativist, and yet our public discourse seems nihilistic. Or, or I mean, Kellyanne Conway. I mean, th- there is a. I mean, people laud the virtues of David Copperfield and doing things like making the Statue of Liberty disappear. That's nothing on her. I mean, nothing, <laughs> nothing. I mean, like so that the, the thing that's like where people can. And it's on both parties, every party, every side. Like people spin and spin and right. spin and spin. You know, the, the basically, it, the you know, after a presidential debate, where do you go? The spin alley, it's right? The spin room, yeah. Bullshit alley. Basically, yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, and we've accepted that. Like yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's sort of we've accepted that that's this is the cost of doing business or something in a world where we've embraced. The reality of subjectivity. So are we, is, is, so here's my next question, which is more complicated. Okay. It's not a yes or no. Well, maybe it is. You probably could do it. Yes or no. Does a sort of, it does an embrace of an inevitable, realistically framed subjectivity mm-hmm. that's just unavoidable in any inquiry in the human, you know, where, where that touches the human condition. Does that mean we're in a post-truth world? Do we have to just accept that there are no? Does does the loss of a certain kind of old school naive objectivity mean the loss of truth? Uh, I think there are people who are, are going to talk and act that way, but it's 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 like um, saying that we're post-faith, and yet every day we demonstrate you know thousands of different ways that we are people of faith, even if you may not have faith in a god. But the fact every time you get in your car and go to a four-way stop sign, you are showing more faith in the unknown <laughs> than, than any kind of any kind of belief in the divine. Uh, I have tremendous faith, tremendously faithful faith, beautiful faith. Yeah, you know, I um, no, I, I, that was my Donald Trump. Was, it's not very right. good yet. Yeah, it's not yeah, good. It's you, like, they're better. You're doing. You're better with it offline. Oh, when you're just calling me. You're you're. You're amazing. Yeah, I'm not thinking about it. I mean, yeah. I'm too self-conscious. Yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, and that's been, you know, for instance, our inability to know fake news from real news. Um, and, I, and I think there is an opportunity here to um, to move towards talking about bias in a, in, a, in a more open way and then proceeding to 
to then try to say, all right, let let us uh, let us reason together. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in the years I was involved in uh, interfaith dialogue, Gil Rosenthal, a great great guy, he was a president of the conservative and, and reformed synagogue association for a while. And every discussion, almost every discussion, he would quote uh, Isaiah one eighteen, "Come, let us reason together." Okay. Now you can also interpret that the Hebrew, "Come, let us argue together," or "Come, let us fight." You know, and not in a physical way. Um, "Come, let us discuss." And I, I think that one of the positive things that can come out of this is not only naming biases, but then also saying, "But here is my intent." In other words, trying to be able to be honest about intent, uh, and I think that's that's where you know, on some levels, that's what we have to have to break down. For instance, if my intent is to purposely deceive people by passing along false news to influence an election or whatever, uh, or I'm getting paid by a foreign power to disseminate false news, well, that has that has that has a certain kind of intent. Okay. If my intent is to give you my best approach to a, to a phenomena or to a topic or, um, you, know, you know, I mean, something even, you know, a scientific discussion, then, you know, say so here are my particular biases. Okay, I'm a, I'm a scientist or I'm a theologian or I uh, work for the oil industry, you know, <laughs> like our next, our next interior. I know I, 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 it's actually uh, the, the, I, the king of the oil industry. I don't just work for the oil industry. <laughs> I, yeah, but I'm uh, totally owned. And that's part of the problem with them. Like the instance, of the money in politics, you know, we should be able to follow, you know, follow the money trails. And, and of course they don't want us to do that. Um, but I think saying, okay, what are your biases? You know, one of the things, the person that always comes to mind when I think about this from a theological perspective is Elaine Pagels, who uh, it happens, you know, is a is a brilliant historian, uh, you know, and on top of that, she's a you know she's a best selling you know brilliant historian. brilliant historian. Is that cha- I mean br- good solidist brilliant? Oh, I was no, she's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, she was at the right place at the right time, uh, helped translate the Nag Hammadi Library. Yeah, no, I think she's brilliant. I do, I absolutely do think she is. All right, there you uh, go. All right, but she's all. But you know, just because she writes popular, I mean, she writes academic stuff as well. I mean, she's at the end of her career, but um, you know, I, I don't think you get to Princeton University necessarily because you're a lightweight. I think she earned her right. There. What about Princeton Seminary? Did I say seminary? I said university, right? Right, yeah, yeah. I'm just making sure. Middleweight, welterweight. <laughs> I'm not. No, comment. no, just kidding. No, I, I was very. I the people I studied with for the no. most part were were amazing. Right. I'm Remark- letting my biases about her research be but, made. But clear. my whole. But the thing is, in the intros of her books, whether you're, you know, uh, Gospel of Thomas, you know, it's probably the last thing I read of hers. Uh, she tells you right up front why what her own spiritual journey was that led her to try to to look at. The Gnostic Gospels, not only from a scholarly perspective, but as an alternative approach to Christianity, uh, and in her conclusions about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of John, you know, she it didn't work out the way she wanted it to work out in terms of in the history of the Church. But she's honest about those biases. To me, that always I always appreciated it about her, uh, as opposed to some other folks who, particularly in 
when you're dealing with church history or biblical studies, you know, you got the angry. name names, Bart Ehrman. <laughs> or just angry ex-evangelicals and have an axe to grind. And so that that compromises sometimes, you know, that you know, it doesn't compromise their translations, but it does maybe compromise their interpretations. And I think uh I think, you know, on a more practical level and a more popular level, we need to be that more of that has to happen. My friend Derek Woodard Lehman was at Duke Divinity and helped sponsor a debate between Richard Hayes and Bart Ehrman. I said, that must have been amazing. He said, no, it was so boring. It's <laughs> like, why? He's like, well, Ehrman would make something with this critical thing. That, and what do you do with that? Richard Hayes is like, well, of course, everyone knows that, but why would we have to draw those conclusions? And that was like the whole debate. Like, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, Bart Ehrman probably has a couple summer homes oh, writing I'm sure books that, that are really like slightly deceptive. Well, uh, more than slightly. Yeah, it's it's good to know. It's nice to know. I feel like I'm bad cop right now. I like being bad cop. You like being bad? Cop? Yeah, this is fun. I like. I'm into this. I'm into this. <laughs> Role reversal. Exactly. How? how all right. It's a new year. We're adapting to a post Trump reality. Post democratic reality. Exactly. We're now switching roles. Uh, you know, again, uh, it's interesting. Now, will lipless critique me now? That's the interesting. There we go. Yeah. This is the question, Steve. If you're listening, comrade lipless. Comrade lipless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting from a theological perspective, and I, you and I have talked before, that you would, this seemed to be lost somewhere in the modernist fundamentalist debate, but the only true objectivity that could ever exist, the only privileged position that could hold that would be God from a theological perspective. And so everything that a human being does, says, or thinks on one level or the other, is cannot be objective. Yeah, I mean, we're, we are, and I think, you know, it's very interesting, like, Paul Tripp, who is a guy who teaches at, uh, he's a Christian counseling guy who teaches at the outfit, I don't know if it's still officially connected to Westminster or not, but he's a guy that I think a lot of, uh, I don't, Westminster Seminary has had better days, but like, he's a really good guy. He said, you know, the human beings are created, and at the heart of our identity, is at least or two things we're made to be revelation receivers. Mm. So the knowledge comes from whether it's revelation through the created order or revelation through sacred texts or through epiphanies. We we have to receive it, and they also we're meant to be meaning makers. So not like part of the human condition and vocation is to make meaning of things. Like we're not just automatons. Right. So the subjectivity is built into the design. Right. It's part right. of what makes us human. So like that's not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing. It's part of what's beautiful. It's part of why like you and I could listen to a song or a movie and have even if we're both appreciative of it, be appreciative for different reasons. And right. and there's more to the whole made of that. Like Right, absolutely. Yeah. I mean it's like the rabbis taught that at Sinai the voice of God spoke in hundred and forty four thousand different voices. The voice of everyone present there. I may get the number wrong, but the principle is the same. Well, no, that's the number. Yeah. That's the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I'll tell you, that's a faith that I respect the proselytizers of because you're giving up most fun things. You get ridiculed at baseball games because you don't stand for the national anthem. You don't get birthday parties, booze, and all that stuff. You, I think you get it rid of. And you don't get any of the virtues of Mormonism. You don't have a musical. You don't have a state. You don't have a... And only 144,000 people are going to make... So you... If you have a modicum of humility, you're out there evangelizing, knowing you're not going to be top tier. I mean, that's just 
That's amazing. It's like uh, it's like Santorum and Huckabee in the prime. I know I'm not going to get anywhere close to all, but I'm still running anyway. I mean, it's one of those things. It's a fast. I I I don't. I'm yeah. not. I don't love the religion, but I respect it. There we go. You know, I, I, and Prince was a Jehovah Witness. That's uh, that. Yeah. That's still. That's enough to make you take it seriously. It's hard to wrap my mind around. If I have to choose between Donnie and Marie. And Prince. and Prince, yeah. But uh, by the way, it reminds. What about Romney? You get Romney though. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, uh, it was one of the funny things I was uh, listening. I think it was on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this weekend. They were talking, listing the celebrities that were going to be at the inauguration, and the first one they listed was the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And and someone said, "Well, how how is the Mormon Tabernacle Choir a celebrity?" <laughs> I mean, like, for instance. Would you recognize the Mormon Tabernacle Choir if they were if you walked into? They're the- tremendous celebrities. They're ve- they're <laughs> tremendous people. They're wonderful people. I mean, the Mormons love me, poorly and well educated. They're wonderful <laughs> celebrities. Anyway, so anyway, so if you uh, if you walk into a convenience store in the greater DC area, you might bump into the Mormon Tabernacle. The Choir. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the one rockette that doesn't have any money. There we go. Will also be <laughs> performing. Uh, but anyway, so uh, yeah, so this idea of at the very nature of the faith. Requires a kind of a subjective encounter to it, uh, and I, I think it's it's good. Now again, I think we see people going over over you know, off the deep end. I mean, I I literally heard on a talk show one time where they where there was this Nobel Prize winning scientist, uh, or maybe they were nominated. I don't remember they won or not. And there was a seventeen year old high school girl doing a report on global warming, and. So she was talking to the Nobel Prize scientist. They set this thing up. And she goes, well, that's just your opinion. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. In the show Newsroom, they said, you know, the main character, Will McAvoy, says, well, the news media is biased towards fairness. And they're like, well, how can you be biased towards fairness? And he says, well, and in the show, he's a Republican, kind of a moderate. Right. But he said, but, well, let me tell you, if the whole Republican Congress went out and passed a bill on party lines – is you know, 55-45 vote, saying the earth is flat. The New York Times story would not point out the false of this. It would be Democrats and Republicans divided on shape of earth. So, I mean, the way we frame, like, so he's like, there aren't two sides to every story. Sometimes there's only one side. Sometimes there's 19 sides. Right. You know, like the, that, the, 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 so I think the, the, the idea that there's two sides to every story, well, not, again, oftentimes uh, there's, Lot of a lot of sides that we're not even paying attention to. And sometimes there's really one side. Like, I think it's fair to say with climate change, there's one side. Now, as far as the reality of it, now that we could dispute about the causes, what are the causes? And we could also dispute what's the most responsible approach in light of a looming danger. I mean, there's lots of, but I mean, I feel like the downside of this is that everything's up for grabs. And then when everything is up for grabs, nothing's really up for grabs in the right. sense of because then we're all in, entrenched in little intellectual silos, much right. like our bunker soon to become bungalow. Bungalow, right? Yeah. And what know, if we made it a beach club? There we go. And elevated this. I mean, I don't know how the acoustics would work, but I mean, we kind of that'd be fun. No, I like the beach. Here we go. You like the beach. I like the beach. Here we go. So I, I think you know, even uh, it's you mentioned Westminster Seminary. You know this. You know, growing up with this idea of being told of the unadulterated word of God. Well, anyone who knows anything about manuscript transmission knows that immediately is a false statement. Now, talking about the truth behind it, you know, that's a different thing. But the, also, even the, the like, where we create artificial things in order to prop up you know, what we call objective truth. You know, for instance, well, 
the you know the original monographs of you know the New Testament are inerrant or whatever. And if that was so important, why didn't God preserve them? You know, there's there's these kind of that we we create because well, then it, 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 God would be a job killer. New Testament text <laughs> critics, God's killing jobs. He you know he's turning up men original autographs. Right. We'll always have text critics. They'll be <laughs> tremendous. We're going to have the best text critics. They'll be huge. They'll be tremendously insightful. Yes. Matter of fact, it reminds me of one of our funniest things we never did was our, we did a whole thing on, on what Trump Seminary would look like. We're the, still working on that. The Divinity School. That's one of the things that's in the, it's coming out. It's coming out. <laughs> it'll, it'll come out. Yeah. So I, I The th- archives, the tapes. So in terms of, you know, whether we're talking theologically or whether we're talking in this whole the idea of fake news that most that more people have got their news from Facebook in the last election cycle than they did from the network newses uh, news sources. Uh, so where do we where do we go with this, Scott? Well, we'll be opening our own fake news site here for just <laughs> and it's going to be. We just ask you for one dollar a month. We've got a couple of listeners now. I think you know. I think one of the things Michael Polanyi, who is a philosopher of science, a scientist turned philosopher of science, said that rather because he thought. Most people's views of science were were, were mythological. That science, right. like Thomas Kuhn, people like this on the nature of structure of scientific revolutions, he's kind of in that vein. That there are paradigm shifts that happen through going on things like hunches and and and, and right. going on things that you know you can't just get from Newtonian physics to relativistic physics without changing some assumptions, which can only be, va- be validated on the other side. Right. So he talked about rather than objective or subjective, talking about public versus private truth. And so like, if, what I'm saying when I make a public truth claim is that I'm willing to put it under scrutiny. Right. That it, it's not, it, like when I say climate change is a reality, I'm not saying the same thing as there should never be vegetables on pizza. I, I think in my house, I don't like that, although I permit it for friends. But like, I, you know, those are different. It's yeah. a private truth that I think for me is a reality, but it's not the climate change thing. I'd, I'd say, look, it, this is real. And, and, and likewise, the church has wanted to say that a claim like Jesus Christ rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures is a claim that people like in the film Silence gave their lives for as testimony right. to the fact that it's. It's public truth. So I think on some level, like we have to, I think that's a better framework that like, hey, every truth, the the capacity for truth claims ought to be, as you said, let us reason together. Right. We ought to assume that even the plainest of truths will only be validated in the context of reason conversation. Yeah. And I think... It's interesting. There's a there's a book. It's probably this book is probably at least twenty years old. It's written by Stephen uh, Tallman. It's called um, Cosmopolis: The Hidden Agenda of Modernity. And he, he really talks about that shift that happened from a more humanistic humanistic in the sense of um, of 16th century humanism to what eventually would become the Enlightenment. And it might be helpful in some levels as the you know we keep yeah again. In some levels, we're talking about postmodernity here without trying to use that overused and misunderstood phrase. But it might be helpful to understand a little bit what preceded the Enlightenment. And and it wasn't that pe- people could have reasoned discourses in the 16th century. People could talk. There could be disputations. But 
there was a different approach to the nature of truth, both from a theological as well as a philosophical approach. And, you know, these communities of interpretation, you know, I mean, that's a different way of talking about, you know, uh, public and private truth, but beginning to, to be able to, uh, you know, define those kind of things, places where we can have conversation, that there's as much interest in the particular as the universal, but that you should be able to have a reasonable conversation about the particular, uh, regardless of whether or not you're going to end up at the same place about that issue. Jacob Smith, my friend and colleague, said that he heard Paul Zoll preach a sermon once. I'm so moving on, Fishers of Men. He says, you know, what Jesus is really saying is, I'm going to make you interested in people. And that way you think Fishers of Men, it's like, get, get the numbers, get the crazy like, Now, the, you're going to be the kind of people that will go to people like Cornelius in the book of Acts and say, hey, wow, here's an expression of spirituality that I couldn't take into account. Let me hear your story, and let me help name your story. And I think there's something to that. And I think you can have the truth without love. Because, I mean, the devil is is a master of theological uh, datum. I mean, they get, but if you have real love, you always have the truth. Like love can, it's like where Aristotle says, you always, you know, if you have shame, you always have fear. Because right. you're going to be outed. Like if some, you've done something that you're ashamed of, well, you'll always live with fear that's outed. But you can have fear without shame. I mean, if somebody came in here that was maniacal with an AK-47, I'd be afraid. And I wouldn't be ashamed that I'm afraid. Right. And likewise, I think you can have the truth without love. But you can't have true love and then be indifferent to the truth because the truth is a person. Yeah, no. And and I think – and to walk – to walk into that person is to, is to walk in love. Uh, it's interesting. I, I we watched I watched the Steeler game Sunday night. Go Steelers! Uh, they'll be fighting the evil empire this this uh, Sunday. <laughs> uh, 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 and um, and I was with two of my two of, of my four sons, and uh, I'm watching my oldest son be a parent, and it was kind of fun. And we recalled the situation one time. This probably happened more than once, but I have one in mind in particular where something had been done wrong. I can't even remember what was done wrong. Something broken or who knows what. I have four sons, so um, there was always something broken. <laughs> uh, and um, so I said, okay, who did this? You know, I, was, I wasn't furious. I was just irritated. Okay, who did this? And no one would admit that they did it, which ticked me off. However, no one would – Tell on the other person, which I res- which I respected. So they all got grounded. That's a good kibbutz. Well, and I, but the interesting thing, and I, and I joked with my oldest son because he he came up to me away from the other ones when this happened. He goes, uh, "I just want you to know, I'm not telling you who did it, but I didn't." <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't me. I said, well, "You're still grounded." But the whole purpose is, I still to this day do not know who broke the lamp or whatever. But you have your suspicions. Well, and not even. I mean, because there's, there's, they're all equally capable of they were all, of doing that. But there was a couple different. There was a. I don't know the truth of who did it, but there were some larger principles involved in that. And I do come away with because I love them, I disciplined them. But because they loved each other, they were willing to go down together. And I think that, in some levels, to me, illustrates the idea of of, of that there are some objective truths that just don't matter. But it does matter. Columbus, how- Columbus sailed across the ocean blue in 1492. So what? It's kind of like, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but but what we but how we discuss these truths, what we do with either our agreement or our disagreements, well that that's the thing of whether or not we can either survive as a society or more important for me, whether or not we actually reflect the faith we believe in. We're in it together, folks. When the world and I were young Just yesterday Life was such a simple game A child could play It was easy then to tell right from wrong Easy then to tell weak from strong When a man should stand and fight just go along But today there is no day or night Today there is no dark or light Today there is no black or white Only shades of gray I remember when the answers seemed so clear We had never lived without or tasted fear It was easy then to tell truth from lies Selling out from compromise Who to love and who to hate The foolish from the but today there is no day or night Today there is no dark or light Today there is no black or white Only shades of Protect your heart and how much to pay.